This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hello, I'm Madeline Gleeson, a Senior Research Fellow at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, where I direct the Offshore Processing Project. In June 2023, as the last refugee in Nauru was flown back to Australia, the United Kingdom's attempts to introduce an Australian-style offshore processing policy were dealt a blow in the UK courts. The UK had tried to transfer asylum seekers to Rwanda to have their claims for protection processed there. The British policy reflects that which Australia has operated since 2012 – sending people who came by boat seeking safety to Nauru and Papua New Guinea to have their asylum claims processed. But on the 29th of June this year, the England and Wales Court of Appeal ruled that Rwanda was not a safe third country, effectively ending, for now, the government's offshore processing plans. To explain this policy and help us understand the implications of the recent court judgment, I'm joined today by Dr Natalie Hodgson. Natalie is an Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Nottingham and Head of the Forced Migration Unit in the University's Human Rights Law Centre. She did her PhD in Law at UNSW Sydney, where she examined Australia's offshore processing of asylum seekers and its legality under international criminal law. Natalie, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Before we turn to the recent court ruling, could you explain to our listeners how the UK arrived at this point we're at now, where it's seeking to emulate Australian asylum policy? I mean, where did this Rwanda plan come from? So in recent years in the UK, we've seen an increasing number of people crossing the English Channel to seek asylum. In response to that, the government have introduced a range of measures. So in 2021, they began by creating what they called their new plan for immigration. Now, the government says that this aims to put in place a fairer, a more effective and a more secure border system. But really, one of the consequences of the new plan is that it's looking to deter people from making that journey across the English Channel in boats. As a result of this new plan for immigration, in 2021, the government introduced the Nationality and Borders Bill to the UK Parliament. Now, this bill contained a range of measures aimed at addressing irregular migration, as well as other things. Uh, it addressed issues of modern slavery and deportation. But one of the main centrepieces of the Nationality and Borders Bill, now the Nationality and Borders Act, was the removal of people seeking asylum to a third country, such as Rwanda. And that was taken directly from the Australian model. Yes, yeah, so we know that they were looking to Australia for models to emulate. Australia's offshore processing was referred to in Parliament both as perhaps something to emulate, but also perhaps as a cautionary tale as a reason why the government might not want to pursue its Rwanda plan. I see. And what were some of the other changes in UK asylum policy that uh, were introduced at that time in the Nationality and Borders Act? Yeah, so this one might be very familiar to our Australian listeners. One of the things that the government looked to do was introduce two different tiers of asylum seekers. Group one asylum seekers were those who had travelled to the UK through an approved route, while group two asylum seekers were those who had travelled irregularly, either because they'd come across the English Channel in a boat or perhaps they'd been smuggled 
smuggled into the country on the back of a lorry. So that's like the Australian policy of distinguishing between people who fly into an airport with a visa as opposed to those who try and seek safety uh, across the waters by boat without a visa. Exactly right. And we saw the same consequences for the people who had travelled irregularly. So Group 2 refugees were only given temporary protection. It was a lesser form of protection compared to those who had travelled to the UK regularly. They were also denied recourse to public funds. They had less of an opportunity to apply for family reunification. So it was a much, it was a different regime that applied to them. That was enacted. However, the government has since walked back this policy, partly because current developments in the Illegal Migration Bill, which is working its way through Parliament as we speak, uh, make these two systems sort of defunct. So what is this Illegal Migration Bill and how does that relate to the act that you've just told us about? So the Illegal Migration Bill builds on the provision of the Nationality and Borders Act and it really targets people who have come to the UK having travelled through other countries where the government says that they should have or could have claimed asylum. And what the Illegal Migration Bill does is it says that anybody who has travelled through one of these countries will be deemed or their claim will be deemed inadmissible uh, and they'll be liable to be detained by the government and the Home Secretary will be under a duty to remove them from the UK. Okay, so then how does the Rwanda plan fit into the context of that act and that bill that's currently before the parliament? So under the Rwanda plan, the UK would be able to remove any asylum seeker whose claim was found to be inadmissible, um, send them to Rwanda, and their claim would be determined in Rwanda. Uh, and if they were found to be a refugee, then they would be resettled in Rwanda. So Rwanda was a key component of making the illegal migration bill work. It was the place where the government could send asylum seekers whose claims were not going to be determined in the UK. I see. So the illegal migration bill will create a duty for for the Home Secretary to remove asylum seekers who have arrived in the UK from some other place where they might have been able to seek asylum. Uh, but that duty depends on there being somewhere to which they can be sent. That's correct. Okay, so we can see the parallels there with the Australian policy. But now this Rwanda plan was challenged in the UK courts. So what were the legal grounds for challenging this plan? So the Rwanda plan was challenged on a range of different grounds. One of them was the compatibility of the plan with Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights that applies to the UK and it says that a person cannot be sent to a country where they would face torture or ill treatment. So that's a provision of a, a European treaty? Yes. The European right. Convention of Human Rights, but that still applies in the UK? Yes, so even though the UK has Brexited, it is still a member state of the European Convention and so it's still bound by that instrument. So any plan it might have, like the Rwanda plan, still needs to comply with those human rights obligations? That's correct. I see. And were there any other grounds on which the plan was challenged in the courts? So another ground was on the compatibility of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda with the Refugee Convention, so particularly Article 31, which states that a person cannot be penalised for having entered a country irregularly. There were also issues about data protection. So the UK was sharing the personal data of people seeking asylum with the Rwandan authorities. So the question was whether that was compatible with the UK's data protection rules. There was also a procedural fairness point. So uh, when people were notified that they might be sent to Rwanda, it was argued that they only had a very short period of time to make representations about why they shouldn't be sent or why it would be unsafe for them to be sent there. So there were procedural fairness concerns raised as well. 
I see. And what did the High Court decide at first instance? And uh, how does the recent judgment of the Court of Appeal change that first decision? So at first instance, the High Court found that the policy was lawful. It disagreed with the arguments that the applicants had raised as to why it might be, you know, incompatible with the Refugee Convention, why it might involve people being sent to um, situations where they would face ill treatment under the European Convention. However, the Court of Appeal disagreed with the High Court's decision specifically on that Article 3 of the European Convention of Human Rights point. That's the one that prohibits uh, sending someone or exposing them to torture or cruel and human degrading treatment. Exactly right. So the High Court found that Rwanda was a safe place to send asylum seekers. Uh, The Court of Appeal disagreed with that. They found that for a number of different reasons, it would not be safe to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. And if the UK did do that, there would be a real risk that they would be exposed to ill treatment and in particular, a risk of being refooled to their countries of origin. So what were some of the concerns that the Court of Appeal had with the Rwandan asylum system? Yeah, so the Court of Appeal uh, cited five key reasons why they thought that it was not safe to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. First is they raised concerns about the process by which a person was interviewed about their protection claims. They said that the typical interview in Rwanda lasts for maybe 30 or 40 minutes, and they weren't convinced that that was a sufficient amount of time for a person to explain why they were in need of protection. Second, there are issues about access to lawyers. So the court found that there wasn't a lot of capacity among the legal organisations in Rwanda who would be assisting asylum seekers. And also the court found that even if a lawyer was available at various stages of the asylum process, uh, they're not permitted to make representations on behalf of their client. So they can't put a person's arguments as to why they're in need of protection. And so the court was concerned that Again, that would lead to people perhaps being returned to countries that they'd come from when they were actually refugees. Contrary to the principle of non-refoulement. Exactly right. I mean, another concern that the court raised was about the independence of the Rwandan judiciary. So if a person was found to not be in need of protection, they could appeal that. But the court said that they had concerns that members of the Rwandan judiciary might not be fully independent or might be susceptible to political influence and they might not be willing to overturn a decision. And so there were concerns that that might mean, again, that a person is erroneously returned to a country uh, that they come from when actually they're in need of protection. So these concerns relate to the adequacy of processing itself. Did the court note any issues or make any findings about the treatment of asylum seekers more broadly in Rwanda? So the judges that were in the majority, it was a 2-1 split decision, also noted concerns about the safety of asylum seekers more generally and the security situation in Rwanda. Um, And in particular, they raised concerns about the extent to which the Rwandan authorities are tolerant of protest and dissent. And in the judgment, they mentioned the 2018 incident where Rwandan police shot and killed 12 refugees who were protesting a reduction in their food rations. And so Geoffrey Voss, who was one of the judges in the Court of Appeal, said that these concerns were relevant to considering whether Rwanda was a safe third country for the UK to send asylum seekers to. What happens next? Is the Rwandan plan definitively abandoned after this court decision or could we yet see it resuscitated? Well, 
One of the, I guess, more disappointing aspects of the Court of Appeals decision was that it didn't find that the Rwanda plan was incompatible with the Refugee Convention. So the Court of Appeal held that there's no obligation on a state to determine a person's asylum claim and also that it wouldn't necessarily be a penalty to send a person to another country for third party processing. So because of the court's decision on that point, there's actually nothing really stopping the UK from pursuing a policy of offshore processing generally. What the Court of Appeals decision means is that at the moment in Rwanda, people cannot be sent there. So that explains some of the practical steps that the UK could take to to yet resuscitate the Rwanda plan. What about legally? Is is that avenue closed now or are there further uh, legal moves that the government could take to, to try and get coverage for this policy? So the government has indicated that they are appealing the decision to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court is the highest court in the UK hierarchy and it will, to some extent, have the final say. Having said that, if the UK Supreme Court rules with the government and finds that the Rwanda plan is legal, there is an opportunity for the applicants to then take a case to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg and ask the European Court to determine whether or not sending asylum seekers to Rwanda is compatible with the UK's human rights obligations. So that's the regional human rights court that oversees implementation of the European Convention on Human Rights that we mentioned earlier. So that's why the European Court uh, would still be able to have a say on the UK's policy because it continues to bound by that convention. So that's correct. The UK is still bound by the European Convention. There have been debates in recent years about whether or not the UK should leave the European Convention on Human Rights, similarly to how it left the EU more generally. And depending on how the Rwanda plan and the litigation plays out, it's possible that those discussions might be resuscitated. Certainly it was reported in the aftermath of the Court of Appeals decision uh, that MPs' WhatsApp messages were going, suggesting maybe this is a sign that the UK should leave the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, So we'll have to see what happens in the future on that front. I see. So the implications of this Rwandan plan could be even more far-reaching and extend uh, into the entire human rights architecture of the United Kingdom. I think that's correct. And what happens if the Supreme Court rules against the government and says that the entire Rwanda proposal is unlawful? Well, this brings us back to the Illegal Migration Bill, which is currently working its way through uh, the House of Lords. Under that bill, the Home Secretary has a duty to remove any asylum seeker whose claim is found to be inadmissible. But in the absence of being able to send those people to Rwanda, they're going to be stuck in a legal limbo. The UK isn't going to process their asylum claims there, but there's nowhere else they can go. And even if the UK is able to pursue offshore processing in Rwanda, What lessons can be drawn from the Australian experience of processing in Nauru and Papua New Guinea? Uh, What have we seen from Australia that might be relevant to understanding what we could start seeing in the UK? Well, I guess the first thing to say is that last year there were 45,000 people who crossed the English Channel. We know from statements that have been made about Rwanda that it has capacity to accept maybe 200 people. And so the idea that sending people to Rwanda might act as a deterrent to stop them from crossing the channel um, is quite fanciful, perhaps, um, because there would only ever be a small proportion of people that could be sent to Rwanda 
under the government's plans. So what we're more likely to see is perhaps what we saw in Australia in 2012, which was within a few weeks, a few months of reopening uh, the processing centres and reintroducing offshore processing, already more people had arrived than would ever be able to be hosted offshore. And so by November of that year, we already had people arriving by boat and being released uh, into the Australian community. And it was really an arbitrary choice of some people went offshore, some people stayed here, and ultimately there was, was no deterrent. I think that's right. And the government's own analysis on the illegal migration bill supports the idea that there is a lack of evidence that sending people to Rwanda would deter them from crossing the English Channel on boats. And is that because in order to deter someone from from seeking protection, you've really got to guarantee that you will expose them to treatment worse than that which they're fleeing? And so if we're talking about people who are fleeing uh, fears of death and torture and, and persecution, serious human rights abuses, uh, the receiving state really has to be willing to expose them to worse than that if it's going to actually deter them. I think the other point to mention too is that the government's own research suggested that A lot of people don't have control over where they end up, but also aren't really aware of what the situation is in the country they're travelling to. So there's no suggestion that people are making an educated decision to come to the UK based on the risk of being sent to Rwanda. Really, as you said, they're fleeing persecution. They're just looking for a place of safety. I see. And what about financially? Are there lessons to be learnt from Australia in terms of the cost of this kind of policy? Well, the UK's plan has already cost $120 million. That was the amount announced by the government when it entered into its Migration and Economic Development Partnership with Rwanda. It's actually probably cost slightly more than that because there was an attempt to send a plane of people to Rwanda that was um, halted at the last minute by litigation. And we also know from the government's estimates that it would cost approximately £169,000 per person to send them to Rwanda. So this is very quickly looking like an expensive policy that, as we were just saying, might not actually meet the government's expectations in terms of deterrence and reducing the number of people who are crossing the channel by boat. So is there a better way for the UK to manage the arrival of asylum seekers? If if Rwanda's not the answer, then what are some of the other ways which are safe, lawful, humane and sustainable uh, that might be available to the UK? Well, one of the reasons we're seeing so many people crossing the English Channel to seek asylum is that there's a real lack of what the government calls safe and legal routes for people to travel to the UK and seek asylum that way. For example, um, between the 1st of January and the 31st of March of this year, the most common nationality travelling across the English Channel was people from Afghanistan. Uh, And we suspect the reason that's occurring is because there are a lack of ways for people from Afghanistan to apply to come to the UK, you know, through other routes. So if the government wanted to prevent the number of people risking their lives by crossing the English Channel in boat, what they could do is open more of these regular routes for people to apply to come to the UK uh, safely. And what about clearing the backlog of asylum claims, which have not been uh, processed as efficiently as, as some would have liked? 
Exactly. So there is a backlog growing in the UK of asylum claims. And one of the measures that the government has implemented is what's called the streamlined asylum process. Now, the idea of this process is that for nationalities with high grant rates, so for countries such as Afghanistan, where we know that over 95% of people will be recognised as refugees, we might be able to put them through a quicker process and make a decision on their claim more expeditiously. So sort of fast tracking, manifestly founded claims to a positive result, to free up time and resources that way, but but in a way which is uh, within the, the protection framework. So that's certainly the idea behind the policy. There have been some issues in its implementation and people in the sector have raised concerns that it was introduced without consulting with refugee lawyers and refugee organisations. But overall, the idea behind the policy is sound, that if we know that there are people who are highly likely to have a strong claim to protection, maybe we can deal with their claims quicker and make our way through the backlog uh, more expeditiously. Dr Hodgson, thank you very much for joining us today to explain recent developments in UK asylum policy and the status of plans to emulate Australia's offshore processing policies. Listeners can also learn more about offshore processing policies in Australia and abroad on the Caldor Centre's website at www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Thank you. <laughs> 